Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by the Institution Theater Summer Lockup. Now, Austin is not only a great city to visit, but it is the home to a thriving improv scene, and one of the cornerstones is the Institution Theater, who's inviting everyone to join them for a unique improv intensive. It's five days of personalized diagnostics designed to help you find and strengthen your voice as an improviser. It's led by Tom Booker and Asif Ronan, who together have over 50 years of experience, plus their incredible staff. Their influences range from the Annoyance Theater and Second City to viewpoints and even stand-up. There'll be performances, social and entertainment opportunities throughout the week. It all starts July 6th to July 10th, and it's only $350. If you register before May 22nd, it is only $300. Go to theinstitutiontheater.com to register. That's theinstitutiontheater.com. Also, if you find yourself in Chicago this July, I'll be offering two award-winning artist low comedy intensives, which you'll learn before you can be funny, you need to be real. And guess what? You'll be even funnier. Spaces are still available. The intensives are on the weekends of July 11th and 12th and the weekend of July 25th and 26th. To register, go to my website, jimmycorain.com, and check out my slick new website at jimmycorain.com. We have got a very special episode for you today, and we went all the way to Honolulu, Hawaii to get it for you. Our guest today is R. Kevin Doyle. Now, Kevin has been involved in improv in Hawaii since 1989, and if you would have asked me there was a scene outside of Chicago in 1989, an improv scene, I would have told you, no way. He is currently a member of the improv group On The Spot. He does an improv rock band called Oil. And he was a founding member of Blue Screws. We talked to Kevin about his unique approach to improv and what influences him. Kevin doesn't come from a typical improv school background. We also talked to him about what the scene was like in 1989 and how he deals with depression. This episode was recorded at the Actors Workshop in Honolulu, uh, which is Wayne Ward's acting studio, who was a wonderful acting teacher there, and he had wonderful stories about uh, Michael Shirtliff and Sandy Meisner, uh, and I always love talking to people like that. We were fortunate enough to be brought out by Kimmy. Uh, if you don't know Kimmy Bellmolero, uh, you will soon know Kimmy Bellmolero. Kimmy is, uh, she runs Improv High, or Improv Hawaii. That's ImprovHigh.com for you guys. Uh, and her boyfriend, John LeBlanc, was kind enough to record this episode as well. So a big shout out to Kimmy and John for helping us out and Wayne for uh, hosting us in his space. Before we get to the episode, and I hope I'm not bringing you guys down with this story, but I just I, I need to share it because it's on my mind. Um, over the weekend, my father called me and uh, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast or not, but my father is dying. He's got this lung condition where his lungs uh, are slowly collapsing and he will actually he'll suffocate. Uh, And he called me and I haven't talked to him since February because I have a lot of anger towards him. And uh, he left a message on the machine. Jim, this is your father. Uh, I know you're angry at me. Uh, I'd really like to get together before I go because I only have five months, according to the doctor. Well, the doctor gave me six months, but, uh, you know, I waited a month to call you. So now I only have five months. And I'm going to go see him. Uh, I'm not going to go see him today. I'm probably not going to go see him next week because I do. I have a lot of resentment and anger towards my father. And if you're wondering why I don't have a bigger life, and if you're wondering why I'm not more successful, it's because I have resentments, not only to my dad, to a lot of people. And those resentments are what gets in my way all the time. I know it would be for my own good to go over and see my father and uh, be honest with him and uh, have a conversation with him, but I'm just not there. I would rather hold on to the the resentment than um, it, there's something safe about that. There's something justified and something like I feel superior. 
uh, than going over there and letting go of that resentment. And I, I'm not going to say that just meeting with my dad is going to let go of resentment because I have a lot of years that my father was very neglectful as a father. He still is very neglectful even though he's in his 80s. Um, and he, he's, he's a pussy. I mean, he, he really he has no balls. And you know what? A lot of the times I don't have balls. And um, and I'm a pussy, and it's just you just it just you're just like oh my god, that's where I came from. I came by I came by this honestly, and it's just it's very fucking frustrating. So I just wanted to share that with you. I hope I didn't bring you down. I always feel like oh I got to be so upbeat in this, but I'm like fuck it, you know. I got to just tell you where I'm at. All right, I'm this I'm gonna make a segue. I'm gonna be more upbeat in this. You're gonna love this episode all the way from Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, I, I loved our Kevin Doyle. He was so honest. And, and again, here's a guy that did not come from this traditional improv background, and uh, he's done great stuff over the years. Here it is, the R. Kevin Doyle episode. Enjoy. Thank you so much for doing this. I Thank really, really appreciate it. Now, um, you grew up in Newton, Connecticut. Yeah, Newtown, yeah. Newtown. And you said you were really into Dungeons and Dragons, and you were bullied because you were a nerd. Yep. How did you deal with being bullied? Well, uh, that's a fascinating question. Uh, <laughs> other than you know, climbing into the loft and hiding, uh, which was an occasional uh, way of addressing it, I mean, the, the main thing was, was that I... Uh, I, I had a mouth on me back then, so the main way that I would address it is uh, it would someone would come at me and I would come back at them and then they would come back even harder. So, so my method for dealing with it was not especially effective, uh, but it was that was. But you, you said you, you, people would punch you, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But nothing, nothing. Like, I never felt like I was getting my ass kicked or anything. But, but there was certainly like you know you'd ride the bus and the kid behind you would be hitting a rock against your head or something there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, you know for years I thought, oh well, that's just normal. And it it took therapy for someone to actually say to me, no, it, it's not normal to be hit back in the back of the head with. But I didn't know you were in therapy. You know I love therapy. Yeah, I'm aware. Uh, of that. Yeah, 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 that's why. That's why I love it. Love it. Love it. So what did you learn? In are you still in therapy? Uh, you know I. I started going to therapy because I needed grief counseling after uh, after a cat passed away. I was really How close old were to you? this cat. 45. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I had no idea because uh, I, we were talking about this before, but I'm not somebody who's very in touch with my emotions. I can relate. So when uh, so when suddenly I was like crying every day for two months over this cat, I had no way of gauging whether uh, I was actually losing my mind or whether this was a normal reaction. So that's actually what got me into it. And then that... Uh, led to a whole series of other discoveries. Uh, but yeah, therapy's great. Uh, the main thing I, I think I've learned in therapy so far is that, uh, is that I need to be aware of how I'm actually feeling, which is uh, How do you do that? Because I've, I've been trying to do that. You know, uh, it's, it's not easy. You know, it, it's funny. I, I talked about this with my therapist. Like when I leave my office at the end of the day, there's a lot of times where I just want to lie down in the hallway and I, don't, I just don't want to leave. When actually I want to, I want to get out of there. I want to get home, but it's like I'm just so down that I. So the, I guess for me, the way that is, the way that I address it a lot of times is just, uh, just acknowledging it, just saying, okay, right now I'm feeling this way, and uh, and that's that's hard, man. It's really hard. I spent you know my entire adult life trying to avoid feeling anything, and now in the last couple of years I've been trying. What to was it that what you were trying to avoid? I mean. Uh, you know, I think that uh, well, I, don't, I don't drink and I don't. I've, I've never been drunk. I've never done drugs. I've never done anything like that. I think that I'm afraid of being out of control. Uh, I'm afraid of uh, you know. I'm really good at making bad decisions completely on my own without any aid from anything else. And uh, I think that I think that I've just always been afraid of not uh, of allowing myself to just let go and just do stuff. And uh, improv has been the one place where I really, I think I'm just able to just let loose a lot of I, I always find it very interesting because I'm a huge control freak. Yeah. I, I don't know if, if you can relate. I, I can relate. Yeah. And and yet we pick improv. Yeah. Which is the most, I mean, you you got to make, make mistakes. You, you know, yeah. you, the fail rate is much higher than the success rate. Yeah. It, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And you have to let other people do things. 
That's and, hard. And sometimes let other people do things for you, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, I won't even let my <laughs> wife do things for me. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. Now, you also said, which I found interesting, that you were, you watched the original cast of Saturday oh, Night yeah, Live. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were like 9 or 10 years old. Yep. And... Uh, which I find, and you remember Chevy Chase. I, I remember him. I don't know if it was repeats. Uh, you know what? My first Saturday Night Live memory is a thing that was called The Things That We Did Last Summer. There was like a collection of clips that they did right before one of the seasons began where it was just, you know, Bill Murray playing minor league baseball and Garrett Morris uh, wanting to be a, a lawn jockey model. And uh, and it, that's, that's my first solid memory of it. And I remember Mr. Bill very vividly, but I knew who Chevy Chase was. So I must have, I must have seen him at some point. What was, and then you, you continue to watch it even oh, in yeah. the bad. bad oh, yeah, what was it that years. you connected with that show early on? Uh, you know, uh, the the first thing with the you know, like I said, I think Mr. Bill was my first real connection. And at the time, it was this is this I recognized the tropes of this children's show. I recognized that this is meant to be a children's show, but everything about it is twisted just a little bit. Uh, that was my first thing, but then the thing, the person I really connected with from the show was Gilda Radner, uh, especially, she, I can't remember the name of the character, uh, the one where she's the little girl doing the TV show in her bedroom. Yes, I you know can't remember one? it either. And it's fabulous, and, uh, and that was, I, I felt a real kinship to that, because that's what my brother and my friends and I used to do. We used to do our little shows, and I connected there, and then from there I connected. Tell me about your little shows you used to do. Oh, you know, the main thing for me was I used to record things on cassette players. Uh, somehow, and I, you know, I don't know how my parents let me do this, uh, but I, I had Cheech and Chong albums when I was a preteen, yeah? <laughs> and so uh, so I had preteen, I had those albums, I heard, uh, you know, Weird Al Yankovic was just starting to be a thing, so we would record song parodies, and uh, usually in bad imitations of uh, Cheech and Chong, because those voices were so fun to do. I never Can you still well. do those voices? I can try. Okay. You know, I, 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 I don't know if I, I mean, I think my Cheech Marin voice was, was kind of, it was, uh, it was more like this, it wasn't, uh, it's not a great voice, and you know, uh, Chong would just be a lower voice. I, I'm, I'm cursed with this Owen Meany voice that just hits a certain high pitch, so I don't have a whole lot of range in my character voice. So you guys, would you write original stuff, or would you just... With, with the songs, would write stuff, but then otherwise we'd uh, would banter, which is actually funny, and that's paid off now. I mean, uh, you know, Sean O'Malley, who's here in the audience, and I do a band show, Oil in the Alley, where we're playing musicians who are... And that's, in a, in a weird way, that's almost exactly the same stuff I was doing... 35 years ago in my bedroom. So. <laughs> but now you don't feel self-conscious about it. Not at all. I mean, I shared a lot of the stuff back then, uh, but I, I wouldn't share the tapes with anybody, but I'd share the lyrics that I wrote to the, you know. Why wouldn't you share the tapes? Uh, you know, I think it was just, uh, I, I just never felt like there was anybody that I was comfortable letting hear it. But I have like four, I have four, four greatest hits albums uh, on cassette tape from when I was, you know, 12 and 13. So. And where can we get those? Uh, <laughs> iTunes. Okay, no, all know, right. Not, now, then you go to Bates College in yeah. Maine, and you fall in love with theater. Yep, fell okay? in love with theater there. Do you remember the moment when you fell in love with theater, like, oh, um, this is the thing I want to do the rest I, of my life? Uh, you know, I was in my first play. I was in Terrence McNally's, and I don't think I'm saying his name right, Bad Habits. And, uh, and the first time I walked out on stage... And uh, there was this woman who went to college with me who had this very weird laugh. It was like, ah, 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 ah. And it was very machine, memorable. It's a machine gun machine laugh. Machine gun laugh. And uh, I walked out on the stage, and she just started laughing like that. And, uh, and I, I don't know what her name is. I don't know, who she, I don't know what became of her. Uh, I remember her laugh because we would hear it all over campus. But hearing that the first time I walked on stage, within two seconds of entering, I was sold. That was it. It was like, this is... I and it was the laughter. Laugh. It was the laughter. Absolutely was laughter. And then uh, you met a girl in the MFA program. At, at, in, out here in Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yeah. And, uh, the two, and, and then you get an acting job here, right? Yeah, at the Honolulu Theater for Youth. But you hated it. Hated it, yeah. What, what, tell uh, us about it. You know, uh, I'm... Tell us what they did, first of all. Well, it was, it was children's theater, and it's okay. a great children's theater. The, okay. the, the, you know, I, I have nothing against the theater. Right. But it it's was, children. It was children's theater. Uh, You're and, uh, fine with theater, but if it's cho oh, with yeah, children... I love performing for children. Okay. Actually, performing at the preschool show there was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Performing for preschoolers, if you've never done it, 
that's once that's you what get, they say in Chicago. Yeah. Like you want to go for yeah. the preschool. Once, once you once you play, yeah, you're an easy laugh. Yeah, once you play for the preschoolers, you never want to play right. for adults again. Okay. Uh, but uh, but the thing about it was it was sixty hour weeks. You know, you'd rehearse for you'd rehearse the show for ten hours, and then you'd do. Then once the show opened, you'd be performing and then rehearsing for another like six hours after the show. And you know, uh, it was you'd be getting ten thousand dollars a year for this. The next year, I got a job teaching one class, and I got paid the same amount. And I said, "Wow, teaching is a lucrative career." Uh, and, and then you make the realization, actually, I don't want to be an actor. Is that? Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Uh, I, I think I'd known I didn't want to be an actor before that. Uh, but getting cast as a getting offered a company position is something that is was very hard to turn down at that time in my life. Uh, it was there was something very romantic about having a, a company acting position in a theater. So yeah, so I rolled with it, uh, rolled with it for a year, and then oh man, no, this just wasn't it. Just wasn't for me. I, I wanted to. I like to be behind the the stage more than on the stage when I'm doing scripted work. And so how do you get interested in improv then? I was in, at Bates, uh, and there was this duo named Abrams and Anderson, the, a male-female duo that toured through New England, and uh, they did a short-form show that somebody dragged me to completely against my will, and uh, it was fabulous. It was, uh, I'd never seen anything like it. I think maybe the only previous exposure I'd had to improv was as an elementary student, this touring group that did historical plays uh, that they'd improvised the music to. There was some guy in New England in the 70s making preschoolers sing improvised songs about Abraham Lincoln. That's, uh, <laughs> if, if that's not the worst thing I've ever heard, yeah. I don't <laughs> but, but that's, uh, so Abrams and Anderson got me interested in it, but I didn't actually start doing it till I came out here. Uh, it was a friend of mine who was teaching an improv workshop at the university, and uh, I started taking the workshop with him. And it you remember was, what year that was? 1989. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it was a short-form workshop. A year later, he asked me to start co-teaching it with him. And uh, so you had no, so you had no experience. Yeah. A year uh, here on the uh, in yeah. Honolulu, and then you start teaching. Started teaching. Yeah, as an assistant teacher for two years, and then I took over the class after he left. Uh, um, and so you guys were doing primarily games at this primarily point. Primarily short-form. He was a he was from the Groundlings. Uh, he had he had stolen the Groundlings curriculum. He'd mimeographed it and brought it out here, and uh, was teaching. Did he ever a, get busted by well, the Groundlings? I, I hope not. It's been twenty five years, so I think the statute of limitations yes. on stolen yeah. curriculum yeah. is probably yeah. passed by now. And what kind of stuff had he stolen? What kind of stuff that you uh, still use? You, well, I, I, you know, I use some of it still. Uh, the the main thing that I think that I took from the Groundlings curriculum as he presented it uh, was the idea that when you're teaching there needs to be a sense of progression. And there's a very clear sense of progression from you know, starting with getting comfortable on stage, moving to listening, moving to, uh, moving to, I don't think he ever got to status work. We started doing status work when Tony or Sean discovered uh, Tony Keith or Sean Johnson. Tony uh, Piscoli was not here and Sean O'Malley okay. discovered Keith Johnstone's book and Impro. suddenly we said yeah suddenly we said oh there's this thing called status let's try that for a while now did they buy uh, that book or did they steal it that was bought. That okay, was great. Okay, great. Probably used. But okay, they bought it, so, as so, long as it, yeah, so, no copyright. That's right. Yeah, yeah, no copyright infringement there. But uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, around the mid '90s, we started uh, connecting with the mainland through like alt dot comedy dot improvisation and uh, yes. And when you say the mainland, for people that are listening, we're talking about anywhere anywhere uh, in the United States that is a Hawaii, basically. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so that's the name. <laughs> All right. Great. And then, so you were going to websites and finding this oh, stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and communicating with people. Like, uh, we discovered uh, Dan Goldstein's work. He was doing a show called Sitcom that uh, he had, you know, he had a very big web footprint in the mid-90s. So his, his structure of doing improvisation is something that we borrowed heavily on when we started doing narrative work out here. And then you started doing long form, a long form show based on short form, yeah. which I find yeah. fascinating. Can it was, you explain uh, it? It was called, well, the first one was, uh, was a murder mystery that was basically, hey, uh, hey, let's try to find a clue. Uh, and we're going to find a clue. To find a clue, we need a letter of the alphabet. C, great. Every sentence is going to start with the next letter of the alphabet. Now, I mean, everybody knows that game. But, right. but, uh, but that would be then, would play that scene out trying to find the next clue. It eventually turned into something that we called the New Commedia. And the New Commedia was uh, a long form by way of short form. So the games 
not in a UCB way, but we would have games that we would have embedded within the scenes. So give me an example of what games you would plant into had, the scene. We had a whole song to remember that lot, we called them Lotsi, which is a, maybe not the most accurate use of Lotsi, but for example, uh, uh, we would do something where a character would come in as a, as a person who didn't speak English and somebody would translate. So you would put, you put gibberish, a yeah. translator, into yeah, that. Into, literally into one of the scenes we were doing. And the rule was, was that every scene was only allowed to have one of those. But otherwise, they would be scenes, and suddenly we would force this Lotsi uh, into the scene. And how long would these scenes go for? Uh, probably about three minutes, three, four mm -hmm. minutes per scene. And, and I just minutes. I just find this fascinating because, you know, I started in the, in the 80s in Chicago, yeah. and we, we, we thought we were the only people doing improv. Yeah. And uh, then to find out that there was stuff going on in, in Hawaii, yeah. and uh, I, I just, I, I find it so, so fascinating. You know what's really fascinating? I've done some research. The first improv show I can find a record of in Hawaii was from the 1970s, the early 1970s, and it was an improvised Kyogen show. And Kyogen is a, is a Japanese two or three person comic form of theater and there was this woman who was creating these improvised Kyogen shows that toured around in the 70s in Hawaii. Uh, there's some evidence that was there was improvisation happening earlier than that but you know we thought we were all uh, all amazing for coming up with this improvised Kabuki show a few years ago and you know 50, 40 years prior she was doing improvised Kyogen out here. She lives on the Big Island now. I wish I could remember her name but uh, yeah but that's we don't have a connection to that Group, but they were doing it in the 70s. So when you guys were doing stuff in the 90s, 93, yeah. 94, 95, something were in there, were you getting audiences? Yeah, we were getting pretty good audiences, actually. Uh, you know, I don't know that we were the only show in town as far as improvisation went, at least in our own minds. We knew there was another group called Hitco that was operating, but... Uh, but we didn't have a whole lot of connection with them, and they weren't performing. They performed sporadically at the time. Uh, so we had a regular gig at a place called uh, the Ward Rafters, and before that at a place called the Lizard Lot. Basically, Ward Rafters was this lady's attic. She, she single-handedly supported improv for 15 years. Without her name, was Jackie Ward. She passed away recently. Without her, there probably wouldn't be an improv scene out there. And did her. people understand, because uh, getting back to when, when I started in Chicago, and you tell yeah. people, hey, I'm doing improv, yeah. they'd go, oh, you mean stand-up? Yeah. They didn't understand it. Uh, By that time, we were able to say, you know, like, whose line is it anyways? And, uh, and that was, Who's Line Is It Anyways became like the touchstone for a lot of, uh, the entry drug for, for improv, I guess. So. And, and then you guys wanted to progress even more into long form. Yeah. And you got a copy of Truth and Comedy, and did yeah. you tried to do a Herald. What yeah. happened there? Those were disasters. Uh, In what way? <laughs> uh, I mean, they were just awful. I mean, because we didn't, we didn't have any understanding of what a Herald was supposed to do. You know, there's this, uh, there's this saying that, you know, we've all heard a million times, a Herald is like jazz. Right? Wait, when you hear jazz, you want to hear Miles Davis performing. You don't want to hear your nephew Huey, who's just played the saxophone for six months, play jazz. And, uh, you know, we were. We were trying to do heralds, uh, but it was heralds, with, like I said, with very little understanding of what it's supposed to be. We knew it was three scenes, game, three scenes, game, three scenes. Well, what does a game mean? What does it mean that all of these things are going to come together at the end? Uh, only, I think only Sean, who's here in the audience, had ever actually seen a herald, and that was after we'd done them. He flew out, he saw, sat in on a class with Del Close, and he said, oh, that's what a herald is supposed to be. But by that time, we think we completely turned off anybody in our audience who might want to come see a herald. Uh, so fortunately, Shannon and I Tony. heard it was banned on the island for a it's long totally, time. You guys did by, it by government decree. Uh, right. Governor Wahee said no more of that. You guys move on. And but I, uh, the, the, you found a book to be very helpful for you guys yeah. by Jeffrey Sweet. Dra the Dramatist Toolkit. Uh, Sean, uh, Sean O'Malley, who's here, yes, Sean is a fan of that, but, and myself uh, and a few other people, uh, Sean found it, we all read it, and we said, this is more what we're looking for. We want to be, be creating stories. And uh, he, the way that he structures, uh, the way that he discusses playwriting is, uh, I think, very much in line with the way that you can approach improvising something. Basically, if you can identify the structure of something, you can improvise it. Anything that can be created by anyone can be improvised. So, by give someone. me an example of what you took out of Jeffrey Sweet's book that uh, was helpful. I think that I think that the the main thing that uh, came out of it was the idea that you should be. I, I mean, I'm going to use the driving using the rear view mirror idea, but you should be thinking about. Uh, you should only be coming up with one question that's going to drive you into the next scene. You, you don't need to be thinking about what's the whole 
play going to be at the very beginning? You just need to be thinking of where's the next scene going to come out of this scene. So taking it scene or, by scene by yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, the, and give me an example of a question that somebody would have in a scene. Well, you know, for example, at the end of a scene, uh, there's a, maybe there's a couple, and maybe this couple has uh, shown a really strong sexual attraction for each other, uh, but... But and maybe they've just started acting on it, and the scene is over. Maybe the question is, well, what's going to be the result of that? What's the so in in a way the same way that you would approach a herald of that there's a time jump involved, but the question has to be the question has to be answered. You need to see what's going to be the result of the fact that now this couple's hooked up. What are we going to see? What what happens now as a result of that? How does that relationship change as a result of that? And that was a that was kind of where I think Sweet's work is where that came from for us. And then from there you guys did an improv kabuki play yeah. that you mentioned yeah. earlier. What was that like? Uh, that was, that's, I mean, uh, we have a very strong Asian theater program here at the university and several of us have been trained by master teachers from Japan or, or I'm, I'm also know, I also know Beijing Opera and that was from China and, uh, and so, you know, Sean and I and uh, some of the other members of Loose Screws, Rob, who's here also, had, had done a musical and uh, and we were joking about well, what's the next hardest thing we can do? And I said, is that oh, how you based it? Stuff like oh, let, let's do the hardest. Let's thing? Let's do the hardest thing we can do. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Let's do the let's do a two act kabuki play. That's what we're going to do next. And uh, <laughs> because, because obviously that's the next logical step after music. Right, and there's a market uh, for that. Right, it's very su- marketable. Well, surprisingly, on the mainland, we we're in demand. Even we just remounted it at the festival, and we've had three different festivals ask us to submit it. Uh, but you know the funny thing is, is that out here the Venn diagram of all people who love improv and all people who love kabuki is about eight people. <laughs> and so when we first started doing it as a performance, we couldn't get an audience for it. We started getting an audience for it once we did it on the mainland. That's our joke out here: is if you want to be successful in Hawaii, be successful on the mainland first, and then they'll. And how successful shows. was that show? Uh, it was very successful. Uh, it was invited to the Chicago Improv Festival twice. The first time. We were presented by with the Compass Award for Innovation and in Improvisation by David Shepard, and then uh, and then the next year we performed on the main stage uh, at the festival, and we ended up taking it to Seattle. Uh, we got scouted by NBC. We performed it at the NBC Sketch Showdown, which is apparently a minority outreach program. So it was very weird doing Skubuki there with were they like, two white actors right. and a bunch of. Uh, were they surprised? Like. You know, what are these white guys doing here? We, uh, uh, you know, we, we were in kabuki makeup, so it's okay. possible they didn't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's, uh, but you know, it was, it was a weird year. It was the year of the writer's strike, so we were the only ones improvising at the sketch showdown because we didn't want to do anything scripted during the writer's strike. We talked to the Writers Guild and made sure it was culture that we, were, that we weren't going to be crossing any picket lines by coming out to do that. But there's something about you that you love the, the, the taking things apart. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, with Kabuki, uh, for actually, you know what, let me use a different example, because this is a show that I've always dreamed of doing, but we've never done. Okay, uh, you're, like, you're okay that someone might steal this idea? Fine, <laughs> no, no, improv I, nerd goes I, worldwide. I, I promise you, okay. unless uh, there's only, the, the Venn diagram of people who can steal this idea is maybe three. Okay, uh, and but, one uh, of them are in the room tonight. Exactly. We have a small audience, uh, but the, there's two people. Two people, at least two yeah. people. Uh, It's an improvised Beijing opera. Uh, so the Beijing Opera structure is uh, we, we you know we did our first uh, when we were loose screws Kabuki became Screwbuki so Jingju is the name for Beijing Opera we were going to call this Jing Screw and uh, the way that this the way that this would work is is that in Chinese opera there's a structural element called Tuanyuan which means that it begins and ends in a state of balance so the important thing would be to take that idea of state of balance and figure out a way to uh, to within the pl- structure of the play. Improvise something where you start in a state of balance, you end in a state of balance. State of balance not being defined as everyone lives till the end. State of balance being defined as justice has uh, reasserted itself by the end of the show. There's also a four-act structure to it that needs to be followed. You love this. I love this. You love I could this. Talk this. You probably would rather plan this. this out and talk about it Absolutely. than actually do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know what? I used to, I, there was a time where I was just spewing out different formats that I wanted to do that we were never going to do online for several months because I have all of these ideas. I, that's just it's too much work. <laughs> so, so if you if you can do Beijing Opera, go go and do it, and uh, we'll, I'll tell I'll talk to you. We'll talk later. <laughs> um, so you you're interested in so many different stuff. Yeah. You, Shakespeare and philosophy yeah. and history of theater. You yeah. like Aristotle and Plato yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. How does that all help your improv? 
You know, I think it's really important when you're when you're doing work to have a, a kind of a deeper understanding of how uh, how theater itself works. I mean, we we and I can't speak for the entire scene out here, but I think one of the things that makes our scene special is that uh, mo many of us feel that improv is theater first and foremost, and so we're not going to get up on stage uh, without having thought about how it works, how it functions as a, as a complete theater unit. How does the sound affect it? How does the music affect it? How does, how does what you're wearing impact the way the audience is perceiving things? Uh, how can you keep people focused over a short form show beyond, well, now this is funny, this is funny, this is funny. You know, we like, we like the, uh, we do a similar sports structure to, uh, it's not a comedy sports structure, but it's a competitive structure that has been uh, very effective to us because it has a storytelling element to it. There's who's going who's gonna to win is like the ultimate sports storytelling element. So I feel like if you understand uh, how, how theater works in general, you can better understand how to communicate something to an audience, how, to, uh, how, to, how you're going to take this Beijing opera project and make it work for a Hawaii audience as opposed to a China audience or for a Chicago audience as opposed to a China but audience. But I found, you know, as, as I've been teaching here yeah. this, this weekend, that there's, there's kind of a division. You're yeah. approaching it from, like, you have an acting background, yeah. so you're approaching it that way. Then there's other people who just like, you know what, we're just improvisers. That's awesome. Uh, they're, they're doing it for comedy. But, you know, even... But even Anytime it's a person in front of an audience, you're doing theater. You know, you can say, well, I'm not doing theater. But, you know, a stand-up comedian is there in their stand-up character performing lines in front of an audience. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's theater. It's, uh, it's un I mean, it's, it's unavoidable that it's theater. It's by definition, it's theater. So, um, but getting back to your point there, there are some people that see, I just want to get up in front of people and make people laugh. And what a profound gift that is for an audience to go and laugh for an hour. Uh, you know, yes, you can also do things that make them think or provoke, uh, provoke an emotional reaction or make them remember the time they were sitting on the bus being hit by a rock or something. <laughs> but, uh, but ultimately, uh, it's still, whatever purpose somebody has for approaching improvisation, I think if they're, they're going there to do something for people, that's, isn't that why we all do it? We do it to take people who are having horrible lives out of those lives for a minute and make them forget it's, it's not brain surgery, but what we do is still so profoundly important. And uh, I think it's a beautiful thing we can do when we bring people into our world for, for you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and they forget that You still have the joy. Oh, Your yeah. eyes are bugged out when you say that. You're smiling like, like a, yeah, like a yeah. Cheshire cat. Is, it, is this what keeps you going? Absolutely. You know, I was telling you about how, uh, you know, I've, around 44, 45, I started going into therapy. One of the things I also learned from therapy is that improvisation has been the way I've self-medicated for 20 years, yeah? When I'm having an awful time, I go and I rehearse, I go and I do a show, and not only am I bringing people into the world that I'm in, but hopefully I'm going into that world for a while, You too. seem like such a positive person. What yeah. could you be self-medicating about? Uh, well, you know, uh, I mean, the the, the short answer is is that a couple around the same time of this grieving thing, I found that I was uh, I was uh, I've, all my life that I've had moderately severe depression, and uh, and it's a uh, you know I, I guess that's the thing that I've been basically self medicating is this I used to sit in my office and every hour for for years for twenty years I've been thinking in every hour once an hour ah yeah maybe I'll kill myself. And, uh, I only and, have that thought after a bad show. See, that's good. Yeah. That the bad, even a bad show, I can get out of that. But, but uh, I thought that was normal. I thought everyone thought that way. And actually, it was Ali Broch's comic, Hyperbole and a Half, when she was writing about depression, where I was reading it. And it's going, yeah, this is all true. This is, and then the light bulb went off. Oh, my God, she's depressed. Oh, my God, I'm depressed. And uh, I just, I've just never been, a, I was never aware of that that was. How, how have you treated your depression since you uh, primarily uh, through therapy and through uh, through performance and through, uh, you know, I, I love the place I work, but the job that I'm in is a desk job, which puts me there with my brain for eight hours a day. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get back in the classroom more often and get out of... And how does doing improv help you with depression? You, you know, the main thing I think is that, uh, is the connection with other people. Uh, you know, it's, it's very easy for me to, when I'm by myself... Uh, 
to just go to very dark places. But when I'm working with other people, I, like even just, just this conversation, I mean, you're, you're pointing out that I'm, my eyes are bugging out and I'm getting excited. But that's because I feel like we, we're making a connection. There's a connection with the audience here. And for me, at least, I mean, every depression is like a snowflake, a horrible, bitter, dark snowflake. Uh, they're all unique. My, my particular depression is one that is uh, assuaged to a certain extent by human connection and by feeling like I'm bringing joy or bringing something to people and that they're bringing something to me. Uh, so that, for me, that helps a lot. But yeah, sitting at my desk, you know, writing emails for six hours is not, a, is not really conducive to a healthy mental state for me. So we're going to hopefully bring some joy to these people right now, and we're going to improvise. Fabulous. And we talked about doing, you're very passionate about genre-based yeah. improv, which scares the hell out of me. It's not my strong suit. Yeah. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I'm willing to try it. Because I've come all the way to Hawaii, and, I, you, know, you know, I've had some mahi-mahi while I'm here, and, you know, some delicious pineapple. So I might as well, I might as well do uh, what uh, they do here on the island, because yeah. uh, I'm from the mainland, just yeah. so people know. Um, so tell me a little about what we're going to do, well, or try uh, to do. The, the two people I work with most often are uh, Lisa Joy Lee and Garrick Paikai, and we've come, over the years, uh, we've developed some of the stuff from Loose Screw's uh, narrative period into, you know, basically genre prop. And there's a couple of groups in the country that do stuff that's similar to us. There's Austin groups, there's Seattle groups. Uh, there's a great group in San Francisco called Five Deadly Improvisers. But what we're going to do is uh, we're going to be taking apart a sports movie, and we're going to be uh, we're going to be figuring out how to do like a one person or two person sports story here. Uh, so we, what we want to do is we want to think about what constitutes a typical sports story. And what we were talking about before is the idea that usually it starts at a place where the person is. Uh, either washed up or they're a loser. Something happens that changes their life, and at the end, they're either they've either achieved a place where they're no longer a loser, or they've reached a place where uh, they're they're okay with that. You know, like I think of the Bad News Bears, where they don't win, but they're like, you know, screw you guys, we're still awesome. And uh, so that's the kind of the basic structure that you have in a in most. So how do we movies. do this and not make it a parody and not like? Great. This is important to us. Uh, one of the things that you know, uh, Garrick and I talk about all the time is that you want to be respectful of the material. So what we want to do is we want to approach the scenes like we're uh, like we're you know we're really acting in the movie. You know, so in those movies, there's a real sense of seriousness about about the sport. So for example, uh, Rocky is an example here. Love so Rocky. Sylvester Stallone is so committed to the reality of what he's of what he's doing of you know he's a boxer he's really trying for that one big shot and uh and if comedy comes out we do this with kabuki too if comedy comes out of it it comes out of how seriously we're treating the subject whatever the subject is the last one we did was uh ended up ending with a car race uh using umbrellas as wheels uh and it was um it was very funny, but we were completely committed to the stylistic elements of Kabuki. We weren't making fun of Kabuki. We were doing a very serious Kabuki play about car racing. So I think that's the thing, is it's how seriously you approach it as a performer. So we want to respect the genre by recognizing that there's certain things that happen in uh, a, a sports movie genre that uh, that you know they, they believe in it. They don't make fun of the sport. If, if it's a movie about boxing. They're not making fun of boxing. They're very serious about the boxing. Uh, so that, I think, is the main thing. It's, a, it's a kind of an attitudinal thing. It's coming in with the attitude of, you know, we're taking this seriously, and if there's comedy that comes out of it, it's a byproduct of how uh, seriously we're approaching it, as opposed to because we're saying funny things or we're making fun of so boxing. You've done where you've done these, and they haven't gotten any laughs? Uh, we've tried to not get any laughs, uh, but why would you try not to get any laughs? Well, but, but, but you see, the thing is, is that again, like I said, it's a byproduct issue, right? The comedy is there; it will all, almost always be there. But what if the audience isn't laughing? That's okay. You know, hopefully, they're engaged in the moment of. Uh, of how you're performing it. Uh, it's unusual, I mean, again, going back to the kabuki, it's unusual to do something where the audience doesn't laugh at it. And we have done some genre shows that have just died. Uh, and that's that's the risk. I mean, but you know, you could do a Herald and it's gonna die. We, we certainly did. We did years of horrible, we did a year of horrible Herald. How did you get to the place of, I don't care if the audience isn't laughing? Is that um, your acting background? You know, part of it is the acting background, but part of it is, again, you're approaching it like theater. Laughter is not the only 
legitimate response that an audience can have to a show. Uh, our fantasy that we've had for years and we've never been able to do is to do a legitimate very frightening horror show, yeah, where it's improvised and it's genuinely frightening. And I've seen a few scripted plays like this. We saw The, the Woman in Black, if you ever see The Woman in Black, it can be absolutely terrifying on stage. So it's possible to do it. We've never, we've never worked hard enough to do it. There's other... Uh, you get, there's so many reactions you can get from an audience, and you know a lot of times we limit ourselves to laughter. But it's not the you only. You better thing. be careful because someone's going to steal that idea too. <laughs> I mean, you are really. Do it, man. Yeah. Do it. Okay. Do it. If somebody else can do it, then it's okay. I'm done trouble. stalling. What are we going to do to do this? Because I'm terrified. Okay. I, well, you know what? Let's uh, let's get a uh, a sport that's more of a one person sport from from our our audience. audience here. Great. And then. Uh, this is what I propose. I propose that we do three scenes. Okay. We'll do an initial scene where we see the situation where this person. Uh, usually, we would we wouldn't do this let's talking get, before an audience. Let, let's get let's stuff. get the let's get the suggestion and let's, let's talk about the, the the three scenes we want. Okay, to do. great, okay, great, great. great. Uh, one person. Uh, uh, what do we want? A one person. A sport. One person sport like boxing or marathon running or something. <laughs> yeah, golf. Golf can do golf, it. Golf, great. I, okay. I don't know a lot about golf, but I'll I'll make I'll make it work. Here. Okay, great. Yeah. So neither one of us know that much about golf. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, uh, we're really going into this prepared. Right. Uh, which is normally we would spend some time researching golf, but right now we're going. We don't have time for that. We don't have time. You know, I gotta. Yeah, I gotta go have, to Maui. Yeah, tomorrow. exactly. Yeah. Okay. So. We've got golf. Right. Now we want to break it down into three uh, right. scenes. So I think the first scene is a scene where we're seeing the current state of the, 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 the athlete. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the athlete is in... We'll, we'll find that out when we're improvising. Right. The athlete is in some state of disrepair. Uh, so that, to me, is the first scene. But something needs to happen in that first scene that's going to, by the end of it, that's going to change his direction. Okay. Uh, so it, it, it could be anything, but something is going to change it. The second scene then, you know, again, going to the grand tradition of sports movies, there has to be something where there's a training or there's a reconditioning period. Okay. I don't think we do a montage, but... Okay. <laughs> and then we see the result of that in the last scene. So that would be our... Uh, and if we were doing this longer, we could do more scenes, but there's just the two of us. So we can play multiple characters, perhaps, or at least one of us would be playing multiple characters. Okay, and the first thing I'm going to myself is like, oh, i got to come in with the cliche sports stuff. But you're saying yeah. don't worry Let's about that. Let's not worry about that. I mean, I think, the, I mean, I think there are, there are uh, tropes and things that we can hit. I mean, you, know, there's, you don't have to do that. I'm going to make you shoot right. lightning and shoot right. thunder. I mean, we don't have to go there. But, uh, but I mean, there, is, there, there are some kinds of characters that you'd expect to see in this. You'd expect to see a coach. You'd expect to see a partner, right. a, a romantic partner that is being let down. And maybe those characters will appear, maybe they won't. Uh, but, you know, we know the, since we know sports movies, we know some of the common things that you'd see in them. Uh, and that's different from parodying them. Drawing from the trope is different. If you can speak in iambic doing Shakespeare without parodying iambic. Yeah, but that's something you'd expect to hear in an improvised Shakespeare show. So. Now, when you do this, I mean, I'm like, this, some of this stuff goes way over my sorry, head. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm just sorry, like, sorry. oh my god, I need, I, you know, we'll I need to Google stuff. But <laughs> the, the the people that work with you, you know, Sean, you mentioned and yeah. stuff like that. Do, do you guys sometimes go like, where is he getting this stuff? <laughs> not, not these guys. <laughs> But, you know, we're all from the, uh, most of us are from the university, and uh, even the ones that aren't, you know, like, like I said, my two normal partners are Garrick and Elisa these days when I'm doing genre improv, and they're, they are maniacs about researching things. Mm -hmm. If they get interested in doing something, they'll read every book, watch every movie, find every source about it, and then they You guys, like, get obsessed by Oh, yeah, we okay. love it, we love it. You love the, being obsessed Oh yeah, being the obsessed part. That's that's almost more fun than performing. Great, great. And your so wife like, is here in the audience. Does, yeah, does yeah. that affect your relationship when he gets an obsession like that? No. <laughs> how, how have you been able to deal with it? I just let him do his thing. Okay. Just, okay. <laughs> great. All right. So let's do this. Do we want okay. to stand up and do this? Sure. Let's okay. Great. Okay. Great. You lost it. You lost. You not. You lost your stroke. You you lost fifteen balls. Well, I've you... lost it. When I hit into the water there, I've said, "That's it." Remember, ten years ago, 
Remember you, when I won the Masters? Yes. Remember? You, you know, you, you're wearing the jacket right now. I know. <laughs> I'm a little overweight now. Michael. How'd you find me in this bar? Michael, there's a trail of putters and irons leading from the green all the way over here. I was here. pissed off. I said, that's it. I'm out of the game. I'm not going to do it anymore. There, there's a wood through somebody's Mercedes window. That was me. I totally get it. I totally take it. It's my fault. It's me. Michael, that you're... motherfucker, you know, he called me a loser. You know what? I am Wait, a loser. You lost. I know. That's what you call someone who loses. Michael, I'm not going to do golf anymore. You're the here. Think of the endorsements. I bought you a drink. Gatorade with whiskey. <laughs> it goes down easy. Michael, I can't let you do this to yourself. I can't let you do this to yourself because, both because you're still young, you still have a career, and because if you leave, who's gonna? I don't have a job anymore. You can work with Bart. Bart is an asshole. I don't care. He wins, doesn't he? You don't want to be associated with a loser like me. I don't me. want to work with a winner. I want to work with you. <laughs> okay, You're that's, my friend. Scene. That's the first scene. Great, great, great. All right. Great. All right. So uh, let's go to the second All scene. All right, great. So let's, yeah, let's, see where, let's see where this goes here. Okay, so. great. <sighs> okay. All right. All right. You're going to need to get a different kind of swing. If you're going to be doing drunk golf, there's a completely different swing necessary to do this. Is what the golf golfers drink all the time, Michael. I don't think I need the booze anymore. Really? Yeah. I want to get back. I, I, I want to win. Carol's, yeah? Carol's left. The kids are gone. I want to get them back. I've lost everything. You know what? We can get you there. We can get you there. You just need to. You just need to get a little, lose a little bit of this weight. You need to get back out there, get your swing going a little bit more. You know what? Let me. Let's let's get off of this mini golf course. Let's go to a real golf course. That sounds great. All right. You know what? Uh, oh my God! I haven't been to a real golf course in ten years. You belong. I, I don't think I can do it. You can do it. I want to go back to the mini golf no. course. No. You know what? I had it shut down. It's empty. There's really? nobody else on the course. I There's nobody it was closed. else but you. Well, it's it's been closed because of some, some problems with some infestations. But but the point is is that the point is is that no one's watching you. It's just you and me out here. Okay. You can do this. I haven't hit a ball like this. You know what? Don't think about the ball. Think about where the club just think about where the club is in relationship to your whole body. Okay, good. Oh that was a God. slice. But that was not a bad slice. That was a long slice. I think I should forget it. No, you know what? I see something. I see what's what happening here. What do you see? Here. You're no longer in the system of the golf swing. Okay, okay. Okay, you know what? You, you need to think of yourself. You're, you're not here. The club is here. The air is here. The ball is here. We're here. That ball is your family. There you go. When you think of it as hitting your family, <laughs> you're, you're almost on the green there. Well, the the red the green part where the I did it. You did it. Yes, I did it. Great. You did it. you did it. I'm back. You're back. You just need to always imagine the ball as your family. Always imagine the ball as my family. Carol yes. and the two kids, Shauna and Doris. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and when the ball goes in the hole, that's like Shauna and Doris getting into the best college. That's like Shauna and Doris being able to afford graduate school and come back and love me. Exactly. Dad, that they forgot. That they, he's forgotten their names, but he, but when he sees them, he's going to remember their because names. Because the ball going in the hole is like the furrows of your brain being refilled again with their names and their habits and the things they like for their birthdays and all of that. You can do this. I can do this. You can do this. Great. Scene. scene. Okay. okay. Now we got the third scene. Okay. Right. Which is where we'll see. Well, we'll see what happens here. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say I think this is the scene where he proves himself. Okay. Now that he's he's back on the road, now we'll see how he uh, see if he can prove himself here. Okay. I don't I don't know. It's just one shot. It's, it's one I, shot. It's, this is the putt of your life. What happens if you get this putt? You're there's no one no one is going to be able to catch up with you. You know, get Carol back. She's right over there. She's watching. What about Sh Sh Shauna and Doris? Doris, yeah, I remember. I remember. They are, 
I, look at them. Look at their little smiling faces. Guys are making me nervous. Okay. Okay. You know what? Uh, I haven't seen them. I will stand over here with the umbrella, and that way you don't see them. You just see them in the ball. See them in the reflection okay. of the ball. Okay. In the reflection of the club. Okay. You know what? There's nobody here but you and the ball. Me and the ball. And, and you're not here either. It's just the ball and the hole. <laughs> Now, how'd you feel about it? Let's break this down, the first okay. scene. Okay. Oh, that was good. You know that? The, I was really glad you came out with such a strong choice about... Being drunk. Yeah, because we already knew why he was... Uh, we already knew why he was failing, right? Okay. Right from the second. We didn't have to spend any time getting there. We were there. He okay, was already great. in a place of failure. Okay. Uh, so that, I thought that was, uh, that was a good place And we felt the scene there. went pretty well? You know, it, it did. I think that uh, I would have... I would have uh, you know, again, hindsight is the improviser's that's, best friend, that's, right? Well, right, and that's, the, <laughs> and that's the name of this show, basically. You know, We're the improviser's yeah. best friend. The, uh, it, it would be great if we had reached some point of, uh, of, of tilt or twist before the end of that. But I think that the important, you know, we had like a, a Kafka S twist at the beginning. You know, you woke up as a cockroach. You woke up drunk already. The scene started with that. So the tilt was already, he was quitting. So he was done. So uh, that was what was different today than any other day. So now I take back what I said. We did have a tent. Okay, a, great. A you're not going to get depressed. No, and no, I'm not, not going to try to kill myself. Not at all. So we're, okay, together, we're going to survive through that scene. So okay, great. <laughs> then the second scene. Yeah, I felt we kind of... I, I think the, you were giving me stuff, and I, I had an agenda, and I was kind of denying some stuff. I wish I would have agreed more at the beginning, because I, I, I think we found it towards the end yeah. of the scene with the excitement. You know, I think though that there's that sense of whenever there's a scene, there's a sense of negotiation, you know, unspoken negotiation there. So I saw that you had an agenda. I was, I didn't. How did you see it? Uh, I, I saw that you that you were ready to get back out there on the because of my and, object. Yeah, work? you were okay. ready. You were already you were ready to get back and work. Okay. Uh, and also your attitude. You were. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to come back again. Uh-huh. And uh, and for me, you know, I I was trying to avoid getting into a teaching scene because teaching scenes, of course. Tend, oftentimes can go nowhere. But I think that what ended up happening between the characters was more of a sense of the characters kind of getting excited and trusting each other. To, that you, you were trusting me that you could get back and uh, your character was trusting my character that you could get back there and get your right. family back. And I was trusting you, your character that you were going to work towards that. So by the end of it, we come to that place of uh, basically being on the same page. And, and that's... That's great, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're how could we gotten on the same page sooner? Do you think? Uh, I think I should have. I, I could have jumped on your offer a lot sooner. Uh, and I, I think that I also came out with an idea of where I was going, and I was pushing on that a little bit at the beginning here. So, uh, I think that maybe if uh, I just jumped on to where you were right away and just uh, helped you, you, you had an immediate. I had an object work, yeah. 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 So I think if I'd come out and started setting up balls or something, but it's funny because uh, 90% of the work that we do with On the Spot is silent, yeah? Uh, You know, our our signature show is a silent movie improv show. We spend a lot of time in our scenes in silence, but since we're on a podcast here, I felt felt that I should go straight for dialogue rather than go with the space work that I would normally go with. I would probably have spent... 30, 40 seconds, at least not saying a word at the right. beginning of that. Now, I, I felt that our dialogue was a little stilled and wasn't yeah. realist, realistic. Yeah. Did you f- feel that yeah, too? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was because we're trying to push it a little bit okay. uh, and, and uh, abbreviate things. You know, with a genre thing, you usually want to give it a little bit more room to breathe. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, but here, you know, here it was, uh, for you know, it, it was what it was. It, and I think that to get to the different points that we needed to get to, perhaps there was a need to 
just be very direct and say, you know, here we are at the Eiffel Tower, right. sipping champagne, my lovely wife. Well, in part, I was, I was like, I was panicked, and I, you know, it was, it was an uncomfortable yeah. form. I'm sure, you know, the more I do this, yeah, the the more I'll get. The, you know, it's interesting. Some of the stuff you were teaching us yesterday about uh, about just allowing your instincts to go with you and allowing yourself to kind of breathe into it is a very natural companion to genre work and. Uh, and we're at our, I, I know that my group is at its best doing genre work when we're in that place of just go and trust. Watch what the other person's doing and react to it rather than speak. That number exercise was killer. Everyone should learn that. I'm not going to say anything else about it so you can teach it everywhere, but that number exercise <laughs> No, 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 no. It's, it's, awesome. just, it's basically, and it's an exercise I got from Michael Gelman, yeah. which is people, uh, you give them a scenario, like yeah. two people... Uh, I forget uh, what what scenario did you have? Uh, I did the one where one of the coworkers had kissed the other one. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they're coming back to the office yeah, the next day. The next day, and then uh, instead of using words, uh, they'll start it in silence, and then they'll they'll do crutch dialogue. Yeah, fabulous exercise. Uh, one through fifty, they'll say yeah. one, two, three, four. They'll go back and forth. Yeah. So I think both of us went to dialogue when maybe one of the things we could have done there is. Uh, not worry as much about the dialogue as the interplay between the two yeah. characters. Third scene. Yeah, that was that was fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that the daughters didn't run to you, but that's okay because right. you're a changed person now. Right. And well, that was a great justification. <laughs> that was a great justification. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's kind of how those movies end a lot of times. Yeah. The person is changed. You know, Adrian. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought that worked fairly well. You know, you made the putt, and of course, you were going to make the putt. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Based on this particular story, this story didn't feel like one where you missed the pot and then the, the family ignored you, right? Uh, because we didn't have enough of the family. If the family had been interacting more with you and it said we'd had been able to have a few scenes where the wife is seeing that you are transforming, maybe her estrangement fades a little bit as she sees glimmers of who you once were coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we didn't do those scenes, so it didn't make any sense. It, it, it could have made sense for you to miss the pot and still win your family at the end if we'd had more time with the family there. Mm-hmm. So. Great. So we're now we're going to take some questions from the audience. We've got uh, a lot of people here, so we got a lot of questions. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, who's got a question for uh, our Kevin Doyle? Yeah, yes. So Art, when I first met you back in the early 90s, you were doing a lot more script writing yeah. and, and creation and devising theater pieces. And you seemed to move out of that uh, in your career. And what made that change happen? Uh, you know, uh, I have a problem finishing things. Uh, you know, I, I have a dozen things written uh, that are written about, you know, seven minutes in, and then I lose focus and I play with the cat or I, uh, you know, load up a video game or something. Do you so, think you have OCD? I don't know. I don't. I don't or, think so. I don't okay. think I, I can ADD? focus very. Well. I can. <laughs> I'm dyslexic. You are dyslexic. I'm dyslexic. Yeah. I'm, I, How does it show up in your performing? Uh, largely, if somebody tries to tell me to go stage left or stage right, it takes me about thirty <laughs> seconds to figure out. I try to make an L with both hands, but they both look like an L to me, so it's a, it's a nightmare. Uh, it's even worse when I'm driving. If you've ever been in a car with a bunch of dyslexics, I have three dyslexic friends that I go driving with sometimes. And left, no right, which one? I don't know. I don't know which one it is. It's uh, but uh, and that's actually that's not a bit. That's re- that really happens uh, more often. Anyhow, uh, but my my point is is that uh, I I think that's the main way it shows up in my work is uh, just kind of a general spatial confusion sometimes. I'm terrible remembering names in scenes. I kept saying. Your name, I can't remember what I called your character now. Well, I forgot too. I thought I called yeah. you Michael, or did I don't know. Okay, but, but the, I can't. I, I, I try to say it as many times as I can, and it still doesn't. Names just don't stick with me, and I wonder if that's related to that. Okay, we had another question right here. You know, you've been in the Hawaii improv scene, I guess, since it basically yeah. started. So, well, two, since two the current iteration started, yeah. yeah. What do you think about what the scene is like now, and where do you hope it will go in like the next five years? You know, I think that the main thing that, uh, I, and I, it's funny, I think about this a lot. I think one of the exciting things about being in one of the frontier areas that do improv, like, you know, Eric Caldwell from Alaska and I talk about this a lot, is, uh, is you really have an opportunity to find your own voice. 
uh, and not just your own voice in terms of reflecting your community and the work you do, but in terms of the kinds of shows you choose to do. And uh, I think one of the things that I'd love to see more from the totality of the scene here is more of a sense of people creating their own work. Like, uh, I was very excited when you guys created that new show uh, because that was something that had not been done out here before. And uh, What was the new show? Uh, for the Improv HI News Show was something that Kimmy, uh, Kimmy Balmolero when Improv HI created. And, uh, you know, and I, that's the sort of stuff that I get really excited about. Uh, I, I really appreciate all the tools that we've learned from different mainland teachers over the years, but I hope that those tools can continue to be used to create stuff that reflects who we are, just the way that, like, in Alaska, reflects who they are. The one advantage theater has in the fact that we don't have a lot of ability for stuff to be recorded and passed around and still be high quality is the fact that we... Um, we do have this ability to kind of grow in isolation for a while and really discover what we want to create, what we can create. And uh, so that's one of the advantages to being in Hawaii is that we have been able to create things that sometimes are very similar to and sometimes are very different from the things that we've seen. From How the important is it for like me to come in on a weekend or Bill Binder to come in on yeah. a weekend or Dave Rosowski or Mark okay. Beltzman? Yeah. How important Jill, that is yeah. to, the, to the community? It's very important. You know, uh, and this is the same reason that we do the improv festival out here is, uh, is that we want local performers to see the, the full range of possibilities, yeah? Because I think that it's hard to, we, you know, we struggled in the wilderness like doing short form, long form for three or four years before, uh, before the, that iteration of Loose Screws started discovering the kind of narrative work that we've been, you know, continuing to develop all these years. Uh, and it's, uh, it, oh, it could have saved us so much time <laughs> if we'd been able to have some of that, uh, have some of those tools from some of the master teachers that have been coming out here. What do you think it's going to take for this community to grow? Because I, I travel around the country and I've seen s cities that are yeah. smaller than Honolulu. Yeah. Uh, what is it going to take for it to 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 grow? You know, uh, it was great a few years ago when Shannon Winpenny had Laugh Track Theater going. Uh, a lot of uh, we had a huge explosion of improvisation around that space. It had a it had a week, it was dedicated to improvisational theater. We had a ton of groups performing all the time. That's where Oil in the Alley came out of was Laugh Track. And I think the absence of a space that is just dedicated to improvisation. Uh, is has been hurting the scene. We've had a contraction in the total number of groups performing out here, and uh, to some extent of the the number of different shows we see. And it's, I think it's largely because there's not a a dedicated space that is just doing that anymore. So that was a big gift that Shannon brought to the community, and it was a shame that uh, it was a shame that the Cuban restaurant bought out their space. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I still eat there, but I feel bad. <laughs> great. We had one more question. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask, you know, it seems like um, on the mainland, at least in Chicago, there's a lot of genre-based stuff that's becoming really popular. What do you think makes a good genre-based show? I think it's respect for the genre that you're performing. Uh, you know, like I, I'm going to keep using the Kabuki show as an example. Uh, we don't want to go out there and make fun of it. You know, you want to go out there and do it with as much integrity as possible. And for us, that means really being serious about the vocal training, really being serious about the physical training and the makeup. And within the budget that we have, trying to be as close to the costuming as possible. I mean, the wigs in Kabuki are insane. Uh, so we, we have these paper mache wigs that are craft paper wigs that people have made for us. Uh, Sandra Finney made for us, a big major customer out here. Uh, so I think that having that respect for the detail is really important. And approaching it like you want it to be, uh, you don't, in an ideal world, approaching it like, if you go out and you do a really serious show, we've done, we did exactly one kabuki that ended with a really dark, serious ending. And it was probably my favorite one we ever did. I died, Sean committed suicide, uh, we had ghosts, and it was a, a bitter, nasty ending. And the audience ate it up. And that was so satisfying that uh, if your goal can be to do it in a way that it's going to appeal to an audience just because it's great theater, uh, and because you're, again, because you're really respecting the format uh, or the, whatever genre you're, you're doing, I think that's the thing that we all ultimately, to me, that's what makes a really great genre show. I don't know if that We've got to wrap this up. This okay. has been just a blast. Um, what one piece of in, uh, advice would you give an improviser starting out today? Uh, I'm, I'm going to quote Garrick. Um, 
bigger paikai here is that anyone can improvise. And, uh, and anyone, if you can have a conversation, you can improvise. And the joy that you have in whatever first class that you take in improvisation is, in a, in a lot of ways, the joy you should always be trying to find again, even as you process uh, new pieces of information. Jill Bernard uses a phrase, riding the suck pony. That, you know, every, we all have that period of time where we think we suck, and then we get good again, and then we start sucking again, and then we get good again. Uh, and those times that we suck are the times, I think, where we're processing information. So I think that for beginning improvisers, is it's going to be times where you suck, and that's okay. And you're going you're gonna to get through it, you're going to get better, and you're going to continue to have fun doing it. So that's, I don't know how useful that is to anyone, but that's my thing. It was very useful to me. <laughs> our Kevin Doyle, thank you so much for being our guest here in Honolulu for Improv Nerd. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, our Kevin Doyle, and his honesty. And I love anybody who talks about depression it, uh, because I suffer from depression. And uh, I suffer less from it, but I just, I, it, it, it just makes me happy to talk about depression. I know I'm sick that way, but, well, you're used to me by now. Also, I want to thank Kimmy and John for uh, in, uh, for bringing me out there. I mean, I got to go to Hawaii and teach improv and do an improv nerd with my wife, Lauren. And we had a great, great time in Hawaii. So, Kimmy and John, thank you so much. And go to their website, Improv High. That's just ImprovHI.com and check it, check it out. I know Kimmy's teaching there, so if you ever get to Honolulu and you're looking for an improv class, check that out. Also, I want to thank my producer here in Chicago, Dan Schiffmacher, the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. I can't even put a sentence together. Dan edits it all together, so it makes it sound like I really know what I'm doing. Uh, also, if you want to know more about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes in uh, Artist Low Comedy, and I have an intensive coming up in July, actually two weekends, uh, and sign up for my newsletter, my improv nerd blog. It will make you a better improviser and a better person. Well, the better person is up to you. Go to my slick new website. Please Check out my new website at jimmycorain.com. Uh, as you know, we're taking over social media. We've been doing this uh, since the uh, since since the invention of uh, social media. Uh, first, we started with Facebook. So go to our Improv Nerd uh, Facebook page and like us because it helps with my low self esteem. And then follow us over on Improv underscore Nerd at Twitter, and then. Go to our YouTube channel. You've got to go to our YouTube channel. We've got some really great clips from our live recordings. Also, we are on Feral Audio, and Feral Audio is a unique podcast collective, some of the funniest, most innovative uh, podcasts out there. People like Chelsea Peretti, Dan Harmon, Matt Dwyer, Steve Agee, uh, the names go on and on. Check that out at feralaudio.com. I want to thank our sponsors today, the Institution Theater in Austin. And uh, for more information about their uh, summer lockup, which is a wonderful improv intensive, just go to theinstitutiontheater.com. That's theinstitutiontheater.com. And I want to thank you for listening, because without you, I, this is just a waste of time. Uh, and until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. And he's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 